Pastor John's sermon text this morning is Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And now, Father, I pray that just as you once kept for yourself a remnant of 7,000 people who, because of your keeping, did not bow the knee to Baal, that you would keep Bethlehem from idolatry and that you would lay hold on some who are straying in this room and bring them back to faithfulness and that some who are outside Christ would feel the sway of your mercy in great omnipotent power and be drawn to salvation and peace and everlasting joy this morning. Do these things through Christ, I pray, and do a thousand other things that need to be done in the lives of your people. I ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. If we want to know God, we have to take him on his own terms. And I know that you do want to know God. I want to know him better, so much better than I do. We can't come to him and say, give me a dream. Come on, show me who you are with a dream. We can't come to him and say, give me a list. Give me a list of attributes written in the sky so I know you. We can't come to him and say, give me an authority who will tell me exactly what the Bible means and who you are. And Because if we come to God like that, I think what he's going to say to us is, I have given you the Bible go to the Bible and know me. When we come to the Bible, if we want to know God in coming to the Bible, which is why I go to the Bible, it's the only reason I go to the Bible, I want to know God. We've got to take it on its own terms. You can't tell the Bible what kind of book it should be. You can't say, be a systematic theology. Communicate to me that way. Because the Bible isn't that kind of book. When you go to the Bible and you take it as a whole, what you find is that the Bible is a history. It's a story. It has a line. Starts with predestination before the world was. Moves to creation. Moves to the fall in the garden that brought us all down. Moves to a tower of Babel where the nations get dispersed. Moves to the choice of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a period of 
patriarchs moves down into Egypt with a 400-year bondage of the people of Israel, moves out through the Red Sea and the magnificent exodus, and then it moves to Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, and then a 40-year wandering, and then a coming into the Promised Land through the split Jordan, and then a period of judges in which everybody did what was right in his own eyes, and then Kings were raised up and there was a period of glorious monarchy with Saul and David and Solomon and then a cataclysmic shift into a split kingdom of north and south and prophets came and there was this horrific exile to Assyria and to Babylon and then a little remnant comes back, 500 years of silence and then Christ The Son of God, the Messiah, breaks into history. He lives a perfect life. He dies an atoning death. He rises. He ascends. He's seated at the right hand. He pours out His Holy Spirit. The church spreads like wildfire. Jerusalem is devastated in 70 A.D. And all the nations are brought in, including us this morning. That's what you find in the Bible. You find a story. And if you want to know God, you have to read it off the story with biblical interpretation of the story. History exists to display God. God doesn't exist to make history happen. History exists to make God known. Romans 11, which is where we're going to be for a few months, Romans 11, like no other chapter in the New Testament, illustrates this point that to know God in the Bible is to figure him out from a history that is very strange. When you go to history in the Bible and in the world, what you find is a revelation of God. That's the meaning of the universe. And all that happens in it, including history. Psalm 19.1. The heavens, all nature, are declaring the glory of God. That's why the universe exists. To say something about how glorious God is. Or take history. Every piece of it. The people of Israel are chosen for this purpose. Jeremiah 13 I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and a glory. I chose them that my glory would be displayed in them. Or what about Christ's coming into the world? Why did he come and die on the night before his death? He said this. Now is my soul troubled What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. John 12, 27. What about the advance of the church? Is that for the same purpose? The display of the glory of God? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21. To him be glory. In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church exists and is spreading throughout the world today that Christ might be glorified, that God might be glorified in him. What about secular 
Arab's history. The raising up of secular rulers. What about Iraq and Afghanistan and China? Is that all about God? Or did God just quit at the close of the Bible? Go on a vacation. Stop doing everything for his own glory. Pharaoh's a good example. Romans 9.17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Nebuchadnezzar went crazy, remember? Refused to give God the glory. And according to the prophecy, his fingernails grew as long as birds' claws. And his hair became like eagle's feathers. And he got down on his face and he ate grass like an ox. And everybody knew he'd lost his mind. But his mind returned to him. And the expression that came out of his mouth, as the Bible says, his reason returned to him, went like this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? All of history, secular and sacred, is a display of the glory of God, including its pain and horror and injustice as a backdrop for God's holy wrath, unimpeachable justice and indescribable grace. It's all about God. What is he like? We see it as a work in process. You read these words. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully understood. You look out at the world today, it's not a clear picture. It takes discernment to see the part in relationship to the whole, which is why the Bible is so crucial. In the Bible, we have the decisive events of history recorded with Christ, the coming of the Messiah, Son of God, as the center We have the decisive interpretation of the flow of history in the Bible so that we must interpret all other historical events in relationship to what the Bible tells us about history and about the people in it and God's purposes in it. And Romans 11 is an absolutely spectacular vision of God's strange working in history, which is why it culminates in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable are his judgments. That's the climax of Romans 11. Therefore, Do not be surprised if your mind is boggled in Romans 11 at the strange ways of God. Let me give you the summary of the mind-boggling way God works in history according to Romans 11 by reading you 
verses 30 to 32. Go there with me, if you would. Romans 11. We're going to the end of the chapter so that when we start the beginning of the chapter in a moment again, we will not be as surprised. Verse 30. This is a summary. Just as you, Gentiles, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their, Israel's, disobedience, so too have now they been disobedient in order that, there's a purpose in their disobedience, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. That's really complicated. That's really strange. You've got to think for hours about a verse like that. Which is why he moves, oh, how inscrutable are your ways and how unsearchable your judgments, which I have just described and explained. Not walked away from and said, oh, you can't do anything with this. This is not edifying. Verse 32. Catch your breath. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, let me state those three verses in the air so you can see them. You Gentiles were once disobedient. God let you go your own way for centuries while he worked with Israel in a redemptive way. Then they committed a decisive act of disobedience in rejecting their Messiah. By virtue of that disobedience, you have been shown mercy as the gospel has spread to the nations because he has now taken the kingdom away from them and given it to a people who will bear the fruits of it. And yet that disobedience of Jews was in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also might be shown mercy. That's very inefficient way to get mercy for Israel. And God is not. If you go to the Bible looking for a straight line between two points, you never find it. Ever. He is the most roundabout God. Does that help you handle your life at all? Have you ever moved from A to B without a detour? Have you ever moved from A to B without some utterly unexpected thing happening to you? Take heart. That's the only way God moves. He's trying to ditch the devil at every point, and he knows exactly how. To make us surprised so that we're never dependent on ourselves. He'll blow your mind at every turn. When you think he's going to go right, he goes left. Go left, he goes right. Always according to his unerring wisdom. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. 
So we're going to tackle this chapter. And I'll tell you what I think when I prepare. I think, oh my, we're in America. And in America, in the evangelical church today, uh, there's a demand for immediate relevance, immediate application. And guess what? It isn't here. It just isn't here. It starts in chapter 12. So I'm torn Sunday after Sunday with how to relate this to your lives. And I think, frankly, so you know why I fall off the fence on the side that I do, I think America has sold its soul to a bowl of application that's too immediate. And that churches all over the place are so fearful of getting into doctrine, getting into history, getting into theology, for the fear that people will walk away, yawn, be bored, that they just are immediately moving to application. Two seconds, whoo! Two seconds, whoo! Off to application. Some story, some to keep the emotions flowing and to keep everybody here. And therefore, doctrine is always being pushed back. Effect, 50 years from now, liberalism everywhere. So, uh, if you... Demand immediate application throughout the sermon or even at the end, you will be perhaps disappointed. Although I will try without sacrificing what's here. And I'll tell you the basis for this decision. The basis is I trust God's word and that Romans 11 is here for very deep, powerful, strong reasons that will help you as a person, help your marriage, help you be a better parent, help you be a better citizen, help you love the Jewish people, Muslim people, help you understand some big, deep, rich things, help you not be shaken and knocked off your balance. Read this morning in my devotions, I keep the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. That's not superficial. That's not storytelling. That's not illustration. That's do you know who's out here? Do you know who's at your right hand? Do you know him? Is he big? Is he strong? Can he handle the major things of your life? Oh, don't short-circuit Romans 11. Verses 1 to 6. Four things about God's action in history. Number one, He does not reject His people. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. Number two, He foreknew them. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Number three, something he did in Elijah's day and does in Paul's day. And I'm going to argue later next week does in our day. Kept for himself a remnant. Verse four, I have kept for myself 7000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Verse five, so too at the present time there is a remnant. Number four. How did he do it? Chosen by grace. He did it through election and grace. So next week, we will focus on those last two. 
Namely, God's sovereign preservation in every generation of a remnant for himself. On the basis of election through the exercise of sovereign grace. That's next week's sermon. Today, let's just take the first two. He has not rejected his people. He foreknew them. Now, last week I argued. I tried to reflect Paul's argument in verse 1. To explain who the people are that he's talking about when he says, has God rejected his people? Answer, no. And the argument comes, I'm a Jew. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Which must mean then that the people that he hasn't rejected are not the remnant of Jew and Gentile, but rather the Jewish people. Because his argument supporting it is, I'm a Jew I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. He hasn't rejected his people. So somebody came up and asked me last week. Well, now, you're saying it refers to the Jewish people. All of them? I mean, all that have ever lived, never been rejected by God. All of them saved. Including Judas. The Pharisees. And the answer to that is no. That's not what the Bible teaches, not what Jesus taught, it's not what the prophets taught, it's not what Paul taught. I'll just read you a couple of verses to show you that's not what I mean and not what the Bible says. Jesus said, I tell you, many will come. These are Gentiles. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom are thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gentiles are going to come and inherit the promises made to Abraham. And sons of the kingdom, Jewish people who ought to inherit them by virtue of their connectedness in the flesh, are going to be cast out into where there is weeping, gnashing of teeth. He said to the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of that day, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Matthew 23, 33. Listen to the way Paul put it. Romans 2. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So there is no thought. In the Bible, that by virtue of Jewishness, an individual is saved. So the question comes back to me then. Okay, what did you mean then when you said all Israel will be saved? Or God has not rejected his people. What do you mean? And somebody might say, well, in the context, doesn't all people really refer to the remnant? Because verse 5 here does say, so... Two, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And that's part of his argument, isn't it? And so isn't that an argument for taking verse one? He has not rejected his people to refer to. He hasn't rejected the remnant. No, that is not a good answer. It's almost right because the argument from a remnant is crucial in this text. But that won't work for this reason. The problem that's raised in verse 1, has he rejected his people, is a problem 
raised by something he's been saying. And he has made it crystal clear in chapter 9 and 10, there will be a remnant. That's not a surprise when we arrive at chapter 11. Chapter 9, verse 27, a remnant will be saved. Nobody comes to the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10 saying, well, is there a remnant then? Is he going to reject his remnant? That's not what he's responding to. That's clear. He does not fail to have a remnant. What he's responding to is that even though there's a remnant, it looks from the beginning of chapter 9 to the end of chapter 10 like the mass of Israel as a whole, alive in any given generation, the corporate entity of ethnic Israel is lost, even though there are many individuals in the remnant. That's what is the burden at the beginning of this chapter. It looks as though they're lost. And that's what I think he means. God has not rejected that. That corporate reality called the nation of Israel alive in any given generation. So I think this whole chapter is written to argue that will someday be saved. And I'll give six reasons someday. Verse 15, 16, 24, 25, 28, 29, and 31 will be my reasons for that. But this morning what I want to do is leave it there and ask, how does it relate to foreknowing? You're saying that this chapter is arguing that God has not forsaken his people, Israel, the corporate ethnic reality alive in any given generation that will someday in some generation massively join the church. Yeah, that, that's the way I think it's going to happen. I do not believe there are two tracks, one for Israel and one for the church. That's not my theology. A plan for Israel and a plan for the bride of Christ. I think the Jews will be saved by becoming part of the bride of Christ. Joining the church, the broken off branches will be grafted in again, along with us wild olive branches as we're grafted in. And there will be one people of God. You're saying, John, then that someday there's going to be this mass conversion to Christianity by the Jewish people. And that's exactly what I'm saying. What does foreknown mean? Verse 2, he has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. There's one really clear text in the Bible that applies God's knowing Israel to the whole people of Israel, which I think is the background of this text. It's Amos 3, 2. I'll read it to you. You only, God says, you only, speaking now to Israel as a whole, you only have I known. Of all the families of the earth. It's not being aware of them. He's aware of all the families on the earth. Virtually everybody agrees. That means you only have I made my own. You only have I known like a husband knows a wife. Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son. You only have I taken to myself as my own. I have chosen you. I knew you. And so I take foreknowledge. In verse 2 of Romans 11, to be a reference to God's 
knowing his people Israel in that way in the Old Testament. He took the body of them to himself. He chose them. Now, here's a confirmation. Look at chapter 11, verse 28. Romans 11, 28. And be prepared to be blown away. Let me preface this with a comment about the danger of preaching sermons like this in public. It would not surprise me if a reporter from the Minneapolis Tribune shows up in one of our services in the next several months. Because anti-Semitism is a big deal in culture, and so to do a spread in some morals and value section on what churches say about Israel would be red-hot news. And he writes down sentences that I say, and then he quotes them totally out of context and says, Here's some examples of anti-Semitism. That could very easily happen. I think you should pray that it not happen. I wouldn't mind people making much of what we say, but not in error. And the verses I'm about to read would be among the many that would be quoted out of context. Verse 28. As regards the gospel... They, Israel, are enemies of God for your Gentiles' sake. But as regards election, election, and I'm saying that's another reference to this idea of knowing them. God says, you only have I known from all the peoples on the earth. He could have said, you only have I elected, you only have I chosen. As regards election... They are beloved for the sake of the forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That's not a reference to the remnant, because the remnant are not enemies of God. For our sake, we're part of the remnant. This is referring to corporate ethnic Israel right now in the world. Israel is an enemy of God. That's what would be quoted in the paper. And we should say it with tears. We should say it with longing. We should say it with prayer. We should say it with passion that God would move us in sacrificial love to the Jewish community to say, trust your Messiah. He came, he died, that you might have life and inherit all the promises of Abraham. Why would you die in enmity against your king? He who has the son has life. He who has not the son has not life. And the fact that they are enmity with God means Mercy has come to the nations. And it means that someday the chosen, rebellious, enemy body, because of the fathers and the covenant and the irrevocable promises, will be saved. En masse, streaming into the church so that they cannot be contained. For the revival that happens in Israel. Headlines in Tel Aviv. 
millions accept Jesus as the Messiah. Let me close like this. I want to ask a question to you that enables Gentiles here. Most of you are Gentiles. There are some who are ethnic Jews, and I'm so thankful for that. One one Jewish man came up to me last night in the service, big smile, and he said, I'm so thankful that you have a Saturday night service so that I can come and hear this because I need to understand these things. I came to Christ, and he explained how he came to Christ. And, and uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, it was Bob Dylan who had a big influence in his coming to Christ. And, uh, and he was just thankful that he could understand better his heritage and the meaning of it all. And, but that's not who most of you are. I know that. And I want to ask you this question. A reverse question from what Paul asked. And it's a little confusing to ask it because if you take the parallel to exactly, you'll mess up everything. I want to ask, has God rejected the Gentiles? Instead of has God rejected? And I know that's going to be confusing because I don't mean the Gentiles in mass. I mean just in general. What would you say to someone who said, has God rejected people like me? And they look to you to give an answer. And here's the question I'm asking. Would you be able to say this morning, right now, what Paul said with regard to Jewishness? Would you be able to say, God hasn't rejected Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. And the argument would work. I'm a Gentile. And I'm not rejected. My acceptance to God is not rooted first and foremost in the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My acceptance is rooted in the seed of Abraham, Christ, who came into the world, bore my sin, just like it says in Isaiah 53, 5, he bore our iniquities, your prophets, and he gave me a righteousness that is not my own, and I'm not born of ethnic Jewishness. I'm born of the Holy Spirit, just as you can be. And my heart was changed and I was drawn to Christ to believe in Him. And therefore, I'm not hostile or hardened anymore. I've been softened and yielded and I'm submissive and broken as a sinner like we both can be together in Him. Yes, God has not rejected Gentiles or Jews, he rather holds out his son's arms. Come to me, all you who labor. Remember as he stood before Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, persecuting and killing the prophets. How often would I have gathered you? That's the way he talks to Jew and Gentile as he lifts up the cross. And so I just say this morning as we close, may God, that is, may Christ the Messiah, the Savior, receive the reward of His suffering in you. May He receive the reward of His suffering. You are the reward of His suffering if you will have His suffering as your own. And may the Lord strengthen us. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, I pray for the Jewish community in the Twin Cities and our relation to them that there would be a moving in our day toward Christ. 
pray that you'd use these messages to stir abundant prayer for the veil to be lifted, for the hardening to be removed, for the enmity to be taken away, and for our day to be the day of salvation. And I pray that for Gentiles here in this room as well. Any without Christ, may they come. May we take our stand on the firm foundation. Soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foe.